Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the October 2021 edition of Outbeat News In-Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. In 1979, a group of men dressed up as nuns and walked the streets of the Castro in San Francisco. Some were outraged, others applauded, and still others wondered, what the heck is this all about? But this idea became the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, and something way more than a mockery of the Catholic Church. Now, if you've been a longtime listener, you're very familiar with the Sisters and the local order here in Guerneville. But for all of our new listeners, tonight is your time to learn about a gracious, dedicated, and highly charitable organization that today raises hundreds of thousands of dollars every year for organizations around the globe. We start tonight with Sister Roma, the most photographed nun in the world, and someone who's been giving to the community as a sister for 34 years. Later in the show, we'll talk with a local sister, Sister Surenda Dabuti. That's right, right here from our local order here in Sonoma County. And you'll learn how you can get involved right now by supporting a toy drive for children in the West County. It's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, October 24th, 2021. This is Greg Moralia with your Appy Radio News for the week of October 24th, 2021. Since spring 2020, Minneapolis schools have been using an online surveillance application called Gaggle to spy on students' online activity. The software flags LGBTQ-related terms and has already reported to have outed at least one LGBTQ student to their parents. Gaggle monitors students' online behavior 24 hours a day, seven days a week, by tracking their school-issued Google and Microsoft accounts. Such accounts are likely to be used more often by poor students who lack personal home computers. Gaggle scans student emails, chat messages, and other documents, including class assignments and personal files, in search of keywords, images, or videos that could indicate self-harm, violence, or sexual behavior. Gaggle's moderators then evaluate the flag content and report any troubling findings to school officials. Those officials can then contact a student's parent or the police. The response is entirely up to the school, though Jason Matlock, the Minneapolis District's Director of Emergency Management, Safety, and Security, said the district uses Gaggle to help troubled kids rather than to get them in trouble. Minneapolis has paid more than $355,000 to partner with Gaggle until 2023. The city started using Gaggle as students went entirely online for virtual and distance learning during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Gaggle flags LGBTQ-related terms like gay and lesbian, ostensibly to track online pornography. But Gaggle flagged keywords related to sexual orientation, and this flagging caused an LGBTQ student to be outed to their parents. One student who was a victim of the snooping said school administration didn't even talk to the student before the parents were called. Gaggles claimed that the service potentially saves student lives, and the company boasts that it saved more than 1,400 lives during the 2020-2021 school year. And in Texas, the House approved a bill on Thursday that would prohibit transgender children from playing on sports teams that align with their gender identity. And this bill is extremely likely to pass a vote in the Texas Senate. The House voted 76 to 54 to pass House Bill 25, which bans kids from playing sports on a team that doesn't correspond to the sex listed on their birth certificate. The University Interscholastic League, which governs Texas school sports, already had a similar rule in place, but House Bill 25 is even more strict and requires parents to show a birth certificate issued at the time of birth, just in case a minor had the gender marker changed on their birth certificate. Bill was introduced by Representative Valerie Swanson, who claimed to be protecting cisgender girls. She told CBS News that this was all about girls and protecting them in all sports. She said, quote, I'm excited that we have the opportunity today to stand up for our daughters, granddaughters, and all of our Texas girls, end quote. Swanson had previously claimed that there were boys in the state who transitioned just to win at girls' sports. But when she was asked if this had ever happened, she couldn't provide an example. And here in California, according to the Bay Area Reporter, California Attorney General Bob Bonta joined attorneys generals from 19 other states and the District of Columbia in the filing of an amicus brief in a case out of Connecticut supporting the freedom of transgender student athletes to participate in sports in line with their gender identity. 
The case Bonta is referring to is Seoul versus Connecticut Association of Schools, which is being heard by the Second U.S. District Court of Appeals. And in this case, Selena Seoul joined several other cisgender female student athletes in arguing that a policy adopted by the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference violates her constitutional rights. The policy at issue is that transgender athletes are free to play gender-segregated sports in line with their gender identity and are not forced to play sports based on their sex assigned at birth. Bonta said in a news release, quote, All of our student-athletes deserve a chance to be themselves and participate in the full school experience, end quote. And finally, out pop star Lance Bass and his husband Michael Turchin announced the birth of their new twins, Violet Betty and Alexander James. The pair were born via surrogate and came out one minute apart. Bass announced the birth on Instagram with a photo of their babies with their birth certificates. Our congratulations to the new dads. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. This past August, I attended a fundraiser for the Matthew Shepard Foundation, sponsored and hosted by the Academy Social Club in San Francisco. Who was there to emcee the event? Well, none other than Sister Roma, the most photographed nun in the world, and a 34-year veteran member of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. She was amazing, and I just had to learn more about her. So here tonight is Sister Roma. Sister, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. It is great to have you. It was so fun to meet you uh, in person at that fundraiser we did for the Matthew Shepard Foundation at the San Francisco Academy. Uh, that was a beautiful event. Wasn't it, it fun? It was really fun. It was really fun. And uh, you emceed that event, and we ended up raising over $5,000 that night, and uh, it was really, really great. But for our listeners who, and it's hard to imagine that someone wouldn't have ever heard of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, but for the listeners who may not be familiar with the organization and, and its amazing history, tell us a little bit about it. How did the sisters come to be? So the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence actually started on Easter weekend in San Francisco in 1979. And it happened when a group of guys um, we're sort of fed up with the, the Castro clone look. It was a period of time when the, the queer community was super uh, masculine, uh, very, it looked like they stepped off a, a roll of brawny paper towels, you know, or like the Marlboro <laughs> man. Yeah. You know, the look was, was all leather jackets and flannel shirts and tight jeans and mustaches and big virile hairy chests. They just wanted to be as macho as they could be. And this group of guys were fed up with it. So they had borrowed these nuns' habits from an order in Iowa. Mm. And Sister Vicious Power Hungry Bitch, Ken Bunch, had told these nuns that he was doing a production of The Sound of Music and asked if he could, if they had some old habits laying around. So he brought them with him to San Francisco. And they decided to just go out one day with these habits on and see what happened. And the way that she tells it is everywhere they went from the Castro to the hate, to the mission, and then out to the gay beach, they caused psychological car crashes. <laughs> Nobody had ever seen a man. A lot of them had beards. They did not wear the makeup at the time, just running around dressed as nuns. And it caused such a stir that they met up with some other friends and they shortly decided they were sort of onto something and they thought, you know, maybe we could do some shows or something. They came up with the name, the sisters of perpetual indulgence. And, um, well, they really found their purpose when a few years later, HIV and AIDS started to ravage the community. Right. And I want to assist. Yeah. The sisters jumped onto the forefront of the fight against HIV and AIDS. Yeah. And I definitely want to come back to that because that was such a, an incredible, horrible time uh, in our history. But you've been with the organization for 34 years. That's a long time. It is a really long time. It's, and it's, it's, sometimes it feels like it's been that long, but most of the time it's sort of hard to even wrap my head around it. It's like over three decades. I've Now I have devoted more than half my life to community service and activism and the community. <clears throat> and... It's been such a joy. It's been so much fun. You know, people often say, thank you so much for your work. And I, I don't feel like it's work. Mm -hmm. I feel like I see things that 
are wrong or people who need help. So you just step up to do your part. And in the process, you get to meet so many exciting, amazing people like you and Judy and the, the shepherds and just like the event that we did together. Those kind of opportunities are a real blessing and sort of a perk of just of just doing what you think is right. So is that what drew you to join there? I mean, there's a lot of different organizations you could have joined to give as much as you do. What about the sisters drew you in? So that also sort of happened by accident. I, uh, I had never in my life ever thought about doing drag. I grew up in a very conservative town called Grand Rapids, Michigan, mm -hmm. which is actually a beautiful city. And it was a, a great place to be from. I always knew that I wanted to move. I, for some reason, had a real affinity to cities and nightlife, and I wanted more. I wanted to live in a concrete jungle. But um, I loved my family. I had a great family. I loved, actually, high school was great. College was beautiful, but I went to a private Catholic college called Aquinas College. I lived on campus for two years, and then I moved back home. And it's weird that in the four years that I was in that environment, I was never inspired to do anything uh, civic-minded. I never did anything for charity. I didn't get involved in any social issues. And, you know, that's partially my fault. I just was sort of interested in having a good time and learning, but also just really partying. And so when I moved to San Francisco, I sort of, I kept that up. I, I mean, I was like, came from a very conservative place and, and found myself in the gayest place that you could be. Of course. And I was, I was like a kid in a gay candy store, you know, I just, I lived it up. And one of my really good friends was a bartender named Norman. And he and I were complete partners in crime. <laughs> we used to run around and just be crazy. And one day after work, I was at the Midnight Sun on Castro Street mm -hmm. with friends. It was the 80s and we were in our power ties drinking two for one cocktails. And it's, it's a video bar for those who don't know. And we were just standing in there like everyone was just looking up at the giant video screens, watching the clips from like designing women and whatever happened to be at the, on at the time. And all of a sudden the front door blew open. And in came this creature who, who looked like a showgirl clown nun. And I had never seen anything like her. And she just, she walked in with this commanding presence and a huge smile on her face. And she seemed to know everybody. She walked up to the bartender, greeted him with a kiss. He gave her a drink. And for the first time that evening, everybody in the bar sort of stopped talking and stopped looking at the videos. And she just was focused on this person. And my friends and I were like, what, who's that? Like, what's this? And she walked up to me and she said, hello, Michael, which is my birth name that I never use. And I said, do I know you? And she said, it's me, Norman. I go, oh my what? Gosh. I go, what are you doing? She goes, I'm sister luscious lashes. I'm one of the sisters. And I had never heard of the sisters before. So she completely got me. Like I was like, he, and all the times that we hung out, all the times I sat at the end of his bar drinking and we went out afterwards and other times, he never mentioned the sisters to me. Hmm. So I was like, I didn't know what to think, but I thought she looked amazing and I loved her personality and we had a lot of fun. And so one day she just said to me, why don't you try the makeup? she convinced me to give it a shot and sat me in front of a mirror and showed me how to do we all the sisters have a have a sort of a we wear white face and brightly colored makeup and giant eyelashes she showed me how to apply the white face and said just try the makeup <clears throat> and that was completely against the rules you're supposed to go through a whole process to join and she sort of thrust me into it um, and I was hooked. I completely loved it. And then the more I learned about the group and the important work that they did around mm -hmm. HIV and AIDS and mm -hmm. how they stood up for civil rights and for people and for human beings, it was like my whole, my head exploded, like this, like a light bulb went off in my heart. And I was like, oh my gosh, I care about people in my community and I want to help. I want to help the elderly and the youth and people with HIV and AIDS and the hungry people. And I want to take a picket sign and a bullhorn and go out and demand my rights because they're mine. It just all of a sudden, it was like I felt like I had so much to do. Mm -hmm. Like I, had, I was really, you know, I felt like I was here for a reason.
and it changed my whole life in ways that I could never imagine. Well, I'll say, I'll say, yeah. I mean, but, but there, but you also have a life outside of the sisters. Uh, yeah. tell us a little about that. <laughs> well, um, I work for Falcon Naked Sword, which is the world's number one leading brand of gay adult male entertainment. So I've worked in the adult industry for about 25 years. I'm the creative director for that company. Um, I have, I really love the adult industry. I was always a porn fan before I actually started working in it. And it was through friendships that I got introduced to heavy hitters in the industry here in San Francisco. And they hired me to do artwork because I am was a graphic designer okay. by trade, I guess you could say. And I started doing graphic work for them. So I worked my way up through the ranks and stayed with the company. Um, it's been great. It's actually been a really nice companion job to, to work as a sister to work in the adult industry. All of the studios that I worked for were condom only and were pioneers and leaders in uh, safer sex. Mm -hmm. So the studios decided that to protect the models and to teach our community, to show our community that safer sex could be hot sex, they switched to condom only production. So I worked for Hot House and, and now Falcon, Raging Stallion, Naked Sword. Those were always condom only until just recently with the developments that came along because of prep but it was great because the sisters had our condom outreach program that we did for years and uh harm reduction is also something that we were big on so it just was a very nice fit well let's get back to the sisters for a bit i mean you mentioned uh some of the history that they have been part of that they've witnessed um you know that post stonewall period in the 70s then the onset of the AIDS crisis, uh, you know, Harvey Milk's assassination, and the and the sisters were there through all of it. Um, right. Talk about some of the history that you've witnessed along the way, and you know, some of the the periods of time that really stood out to you that changed you. Well, the sisters uh, in 1979 grew very quickly and attracted a lot of really colorful, creative people with a lot of passion including Gilbert Baker at one point was a sister who's the creator of the gay flag. That's right. And sister Boom Boom was probably the most famous sister of that era who actually ran for city supervisor. So the group had attained a lot of national, international attention and both positive and negative, of course, and reached a high point. And then even though they were so active in safer sex practices and education about HIV and AIDS, the group was sort of decimated by it. The sisters were actually the first group ever to produce a pamphlet called Playfair, which was a safe sex, the first ever safe sex pamphlet. We still hmm. produce that today, but continue to update it. The sisters were the first group to hold a fundraiser for people who were sick and dying from HIV and AIDS back when it was still called GRID, right. which was way like <laughs> the very beginning. That's a very beginning. And and those sort of things really inspired me and motivated me to join because the sisters really, along with the rest of our community, taught the world how to respond to a plague with compassion. And they approached it very pragmatically. And also, so many people in our community were sick and dying. And at that time, it was very common for you to, you would lose weight dramatically, you would get Carposi's sarcoma, purple spots would pop up all over your body. You, you would get the night sweats and people were so afraid because there was a lot of people still didn't know what it was and they didn't know how it was transmitted. It just was frightening to see. And people lost their jobs. They lost their homes and sometimes their families mm -hmm. and quite often their friends. Mm just out of the fear. So, so many people were isolated and alone and the sisters would seek out those individuals. Most often you would find them like in the back of a dark bar hunched over a cocktail alone. And the sisters would just go in and sit down and, and strike up a conversation. And that was something that a lot of those people hadn't experienced in a long time. You know, they just wanted to talk. And so they would do that. And sometimes those people would even ask for a hug and the sisters always said yes. 
They were never afraid. So it was that fearless uh, compassion that really worked for me. That's what sparked me to join. So when I joined later in 1987, the group had sort of dwindled down to just about five members. Wow. Yeah. So there had been a huge exodus of sisters due to death and other things, or many retired. And uh, the fate of the, of the organization was sort of, wasn't certain. Um, and I just took off running with it. Like I, I felt so at ease and so driven as, as Roma that um, I ended up writing a column for a magazine in the city. I started hosting the main stage of Gay Pride, um, Folsom Street Fair. We did Halloween in the Castro. Mm. Um, the sisters were the first group ever to actually take buckets out into the streets in Halloween in 1989 after the earthquake. There was um, Art Agnos was the mayor. That's right. And he, he started Agnos's Earthquake Relief Fund. So the sisters took stepladders and bullhorns and buckets to Castro Street, where our community gathered for Halloween, and just collected money for that. And in one night, we raised $10,000. Holy cow. Yeah. Wow. So we were like, there's a huge resource for untapped funds here. So that's when we organized Halloween in the Castro. I ended up on the, on the main stage of that. And the visibility that, with, that the, small, the small number of us created attracted more people, and the order continued, started to grow from that point. And today, 30 years later, we have sisters on four continents. There's, there's like over 4,000 sisters around the world. That, I think, is remarkable. You know, there's so much history that's come out of San Francisco. I, I love talking to my students about it. They have not a clue that so much of our community's history came right out of the city. And, and this is all part of it. Um, Absolutely. Gotta, San Francisco yeah. is the epicenter for so many the gay man's chorus dykes on bikes gay yep. marriage all of those things the so many things started here the imperial court and the sisters of course and you know when you come from a small town and there's a plague happening people are going to tell you two things right they're going to first thing that they say whenever you leave any small town it doesn't matter who you are probably they tell you well you'll be back you know they don't think you're going to make it but the other thing that I heard was you're going to get AIDS. Right. And I, and I have to say that I had the, the AIDS anxiety, the fear was real. We all experienced it. There was no way you could live in the world and not be aware of it. But it turned out that moving to San Francisco was the best place to be because sure. we were on the forefront of, of education and the, all of it, all the fight against HIV and AIDS right here is where it all started. So it was a great move. Yeah. You know, I remember, um, well, gosh, 81, I graduated high school. Me too. Yeah. Well then that's just the year, right? When we're starting to get out and explore. Um, I remember going to a bathhouse on Ritchie street and walking to the doors that, right, right? <laughs> that that's naked sword had an office in that space years years later after the bars, after that bath closed well i'll never forget it because i walked into that lobby and i immediately saw these posters these warning posters that were up they were they were already there and the the story had broken about you know this strange disease impacting gay men and i i almost I almost felt like my breath was being taken away and I got this panic, sort of panic feeling and I left. Uh, and then three years later, you know, I was working, uh, I'd working for my police, my first police department. And I distinctly remember, this is 83 now, uh, sitting down during a training session and being issued gloves and masks and being told, if you come in contact with anybody you even think is gay, put these gloves and masks on quick because, you know, you could catch this. Yep. There was such a, there was such a fear about how it could be transmitted. But you talked about going into bars, the sisters going into bars and, and hugging people during that same time. Where did that courage come from? Where did that sense that this was going to be okay come from? Well, one of the sisters, uh, Sister Florence Nightmare, was actually an RN. Hmm. Bobby Campbell was their name. And the sisters always looked at it as a, a virus, as a and knew how viruses are transmitted. And Bobby Campbell became the face of HIV and AIDS yeah. when when he appeared on the cover of Newsweek magazine. Yeah, he did. So there was a really a deep roots in healthcare and 
all of those things that, that led the sisters to believe that. And also I think, and this isn't gonna sound very logical, but it was also sort of a, a faith. I think that a lot of people think that we're soulless, you know, blasphemous people who lack faith. But the reality is the sisters are, are loaded with faith and hope and love. And that is the motivating factor behind all of us. And that's what I think keeps us going. And I think it protects us in a lot of ways. Hmm. Wow. Is, and that you, might be hocus pocus and people are like yeah girl right i mean i'm not saying i'm not trust me i'm double vaxxed i was I, I you know i'm all about it but i also believe that that there's just something about your attitude and what you put when you what you give out and what you give back it really does make a difference now you were so you went did you go from high school right into the police academy i did i i was a cadet at the time and through high school and i got hired uh, actually, as a 911 dispatcher right out of high school. Um, and then wow. Were you went out? to the academy. No. Oh, you no. Couldn't be out. No way. Not no at way. that time. No. 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 Uh, you know, I love my first department. It'll always hold a very special place in my heart, but it was a very homophobic place. Very clearly, very visibly homophobic. And I knew that there was just no way I could be out at that time. Right. So, but I get it now. It was the context of the time. And. Um, you know, fortunately things are getting better, but that was just the reality. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, I, I took student teaching in college. Okay. So when I did my student teaching, I was placed like in a, in a group of a class of second graders and I loved it. I loved working with the kids and I thought, you know, I really, I think I'd be a really good teacher, but in 81, 82, there's no way 83 that you could be out and gay and be a teacher. Right. You really couldn't even be out and gay and live in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I mean, there's two gay bars. They didn't have a window. And it was probably the worst thing you could be. Yeah. I think that, that you and I grew up, and I think most people before us grew up in a time when literally being gay was the worst thing that could happen. It was a curse on the family. It was, you, you were, there was no future. You right. know, you couldn't tell anybody. You were either a sinner or a crazy or... There was something wrong. Your parents felt like they did something wrong. It was a whole thing. So I totally get it. Like you, we had to survive. That's right. And that's what our community did for a really long time because we've always been here. Yep. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And there was a, there was a way that, uh, you know, a confirmed bachelor in the 40s and 50s who was very dapper and sassy you know was gay but they didn't it was just wasn't even a word they didn't even know yeah. what it was but they found each other so you got a chance to travel around i know from talking with sisters uh, over at the russian river in that order that that's one of the interesting and fun things about being part of a global organization now uh, talk about some of the places you've had a visit to visit and some of the orders that you've experienced well i so after doing it all these years and watching orders pop up around the world, um, I decided that I would really like to travel and meet some more of my sisters and get a feel for who they are and the work that they're doing. So um, I have traveled to Manchester and hung out with the sisters there during Pride. I've been to Paris and Sydney uh, with sisters there. And I've been to places like North Carolina and um, Phoenix and Seattle and Los Angeles and hung out with sisters in Florida, all over the United States. And it's just been a, a, an unexpected uh, joy to meet all of these crazy like-minded people who answered the calling that I, that I, did and who believe the things that I do, you know, we're all different, colorful, opinionated people, but it really doesn't matter if you're in Paris or Raleigh, North Carolina, sitting with a group of sisters, you look around and you feel at home mm -hmm. and you look at everybody and you're like this, you just can tell that you're with these people and that we really are a, a group of like-minded individuals and a twisted, crazy family and an order of religious warriors, you know, like we're all of these things. And that has been a, a great privilege, really, that I have that I'm able to travel to these places. 
What's the one that stands out to you? It's just the, I'll never forget this. I was invited with an international contingent of sisters to Shanghai for their sixth annual pride celebration. And that was a trip I'll never forget. Mm. It was, I never actually wanted to go to China. Like it was not even on my list, but when the opportunity presented itself, I jumped at it and we brought a filmmaker, my friend Monet, with, with us. So we have a documentary. It's called Stilettos for Shanghai. So the whole trip was documented in a really fun short film. Uh, but that experience was unlike any other because China, of course, is communist and they have so many rules and laws. There are not a lot of freedoms there. So you can imagine that when they saw a group of drag nuns running around, they didn't really know what to do. <laughs> the, the people in China responded very favorably. There was just a lot of curiosity and awe and amazement. I, I can't begin to imagine what went through their heads, but I know that there were huge crowds gathered everywhere we went, which the, the government does not like. So it didn't take long for the police to show up and blow their whistles and get everybody to keep moving and ask us to like move across the street or move to a different location. But wherever we went, it was a sensation. It was really cool. How interesting. Yeah. Uh, and I know that one of the very impressive things you have on your resume is that you are indeed the most photographed sister of perpetual indulgence in the organization. How did that come about? Uh, no, I, I beg to correct you. I'm the most photographed nun in the world. That is the tagline. <laughs> and it's true, because if you Google it, sure enough, there she is. There's Roma. That's your girl. But um, I actually came up with that because you know, for 15 years, I was the MC at the Folsom Street Fair, which for, for your listeners who don't know, is the world's largest outdoor fetish festival. And it takes place in a huge footprint south of Market, San Francisco, on Folsom Street. And I was on the main stage hosting. And one year, it was particularly hot, crowded, crazy, just probably one of the best fairs ever but I was worn out at the end of my gig, right? So I'm trying to work my way through this crowd. And I mean, there's like 100,000 people. So I'm trying to work my way through this crowd. <clears throat> my feet hurt, very hot, sweaty, just over it. And people keep coming up asking for photos. And I would begrudgingly stop, do a photo. Sometimes I wouldn't stop. I'd be like, I just, I just have to get out of here. And I would just like breeze past them, you know? And um, I made it to my friend's house in the mission and I threw myself down in a chair in his place and just proceeded to complain. I was, I said, I just, ugh, I'm so hot and over it. I can't stand people. If one more person asks me for a photo, I'm gonna lose it. And he just looked at me and he said, well, you better enjoy it because one day no one will. Mm -hmm. And I just, I mean, it hit me like a ton of bricks. My face cracked, you know, I was like, Oh my God, I am, it just it really, I, I was embarrassed, honestly. And I sort of vowed to myself from that day forward, I would never say no to a photo. And this was many, many years ago. <laughs> like this is now I've haven't emceed the fair in a good 10, 15 years. So I figure that, I mean, I don't say no, I won't. And my friends won't even walk with me anymore. If we go somewhere public, they just know that I'm going to stop and interact with people because that's what I'm there for. Like you don't dress the way I do and behave the way I do and go to the places I go if you don't want attention, right. if you don't want to be noticed, if you don't want to inter inter interact with people. And that's what I'm all about. So I'll stop and pose for pictures and talk. And sometimes if there's not a person, I'll just start talking to <laughs> the stop sign. Like, I, you know, I think I have a problem. But um, so I figured that all the photos that I have have had taken with people that people sneak when you're not looking, that are taken from a distance. If you start to add those up after all of these years and all the events that I've done, probably the most photographed nun in the world. I so I it. made that up and it's, it's sort of stuck. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. You're a great representation for the organization and the whole idea of it. So I'd keep running with that. <laughs> okay. Uh, you're involved with the San Francisco's uh, Academy Social Club in the in the Castro. We had uh, Nate Borg on when the Academy sort of first opened up. I think it's really a, a cool idea and a great space. But oh, talk it's, it's so beautiful. It, it, it is. It's and it's really a great idea. It's 
just a great place to go meet people. I mean, I met some fantastic people that were part of the organization that night. And, uh, you know, talk about the partnership that you and the work that you do together with the Academy, because it's more than just a social club. They're also actively involved in supporting the community as well. Absolutely. So I have been friends with Paul Miller, who actually developed the club and his partners with Nate, who you mentioned, Mm -hmm. for a very long time. Like Paul Miller is is right up there with among my closest friends. I know his family. I spend Christmas dinner with them. Um, Paul is from San Francisco and he and Nate have true San Francisco values. So they're not going to develop this club without making sure that it gives back in some way. And they've done so many fundraisers and different events to raise awareness and support the community that it's been really a, a pleasure to, to be an honorary member. And I was recognized as the first inductee of their legends uh, <laughs> where they, have, they actually have uh, my veil and my wimple and my feathers and some jewelry in a box up in one of the rooms on display. I saw that. And yeah, so that was, that was a great honor. Um, and I just continued to partner with them to do special events like we did and, and watch them grow and, and see them succeed. It's, it's a beautiful place. That's awesome. That's great. And I'm sure they appreciate having you there to be able to emcee events like the one you did for us. Well, the, the image of the sisters has certainly evolved over time. And you talked about people's initial reaction when that group of men walked down the street in, in habits. Uh, and I do remember hearing about, you know, the criticism and the, I don't know, the criticism that, that the group was mocking the church. Uh, but talk about how the image has evolved now. I mean, I think there's probably a much better understanding of the role that the sisters play in supporting the community and I have to imagine that you're embraced everywhere you go. <laughs> uh, not everywhere, but that's the reason that we do it. Um, you know, it's really nice to be able to walk red carpets and, and feel the love and affection and adoration from people. But really, sometimes it's the people who don't want to see it who need to see us the most. Um, but to get to your actual question, The struggle has been real for the sisters. There was a lot of negative reactions to the group for many, many years, because like I said, nobody had ever seen men dressed as nuns before. And you can't come up with a more iconic, religiously important image than a nun. So it it struck people on, on religion, it struck people of men in dresses, so there was a lot of misogyny going on. There was a lot of, because the gay men can be just as hateful towards uh, feminine, anything feminine, including gay, feminine gay men, as anybody else. Mm-hmm. So it took a long time for the sisters to get people to realize um, that we're not making fun of nuns. There are a lot of nuns who love the sisters and absolutely support and understand who we are and what we do. But like it took time to get there. Um, a lot of people felt like these crazy clown nuns were ruining it for everyone, running around, bringing, setting the whole queer movement back because there was this desire to sort of assimilate and fit in and present a very normal. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of guilty of that too. I come to think of it, you know, um, I wasn't out in high school, although I was very flamboyant. And then in college, I kind of had this attitude like, I'm just like you, you know, we're just like you, we're just queer. I didn't want it to be that big of a deal or an issue. And then when I went to the March on Washington in 93 is when it really hit me. I had a really nice talk with a sister, Sister X, who was a sister from San Francisco. And she made me realize that I was there not asking for my civil rights because they're already mine. I was demanding them. And she also, that whole experience made me realize that I'm not just like everybody else and I don't want to be. And I think that gay people should take pride in the fact all queer people, trans people, gender nonconforming, anybody who doesn't fit in or feels like they're a freak, congratulations, like you are special. And who wants to be normal? Who really just wants to fit in? I just, I realized not me. So you hope over time that the community would learn that the good works that we do, the work we did around HIV and AIDS and the, the millions we've raised, I'm sure 
a million dollars in over all this time mm -hmm. and giving back to the community. Like we're very transparent. We're a 501c3 organization. That's a legal classification. So we're required to, our books are open to the public. And you know that when you see a sister with a bucket and you drop a dollar in, 95 cents of it is going right back to the community. We have no overhead. We've never had a paid employee. The sisters are 100% volunteer. And we serve our community. We're really not <clears throat> making fun of nuns. We are nuns. And sisters all over the world, I've watched the orders pop up and start to look around their community and serve in ways that they see need. Their community needs them. And that's what nuns do. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Uh, how big is the order in San Francisco now? So now we probably have about, I would say 60 members and there's probably 30 that are active and 10 who are really, really active. And are you recruiting? Interested in growing? Always, always. We have a reputation for being a group of gay white men because that's how we started. And even though there were women from the very beginning and, and people of color, it's been a hurdle for us to overcome. I think that our image and the order and their perception of us reflects what's going on in the world today. So we have had trans members from the very beginning. The sisters have been uh, huge supporters of the trans community way before people were using words like transgender. Um, but we want people to know that, that our group is open to those people. So we're trying to attract of wide variety of members. We do have members of color and trans people in our organization and women, and we're always looking and we need young people. It's, you know, cause we gotta keep going. We're 43 years old. I would like to see the order go for another 43, for another hundred years, why not? Where can people go to follow you? Me personally, I'm on all social media. I love social media. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Christian Mingle, Farmers Only. No. Um, so it's all at Sister Roma. I'm not hard to find. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, we will track down those links and put them on our website at OutBeatNews.com. You can just go to show notes at the top of the page and link up and follow the great work of Sister Roma and the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Thank you so much for being you and for doing all the great work you're doing. It's, it's really terrific. Uh, well, thank you for being you. And it's been my pleasure to chat with you. So thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Outbeat News in Depth here on KRCB Radio. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, as you heard Sister Roma describe, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence have orders all over the world, including right here in Sonoma County. And I'm a huge fan of their work. Over the years, I've had sisters on my show many times. And this year, the sisters are fundraising for a toy drive. And when I saw a request for donations, I just couldn't say no. And here to share more about how you can take part in this important toy drive is Sister Surrenda Debuti. Sister, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's always great to connect with what's going on out at the Russian River Order. But for our listeners who may not be familiar with uh, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, and specifically the Russian River Order, uh, give us a little bit of background on when it was created and a little bit about the specific order there. So uh, the Russian River Sisters started in 2001. So this year we celebrated 20 years. Um, it's, uh, I have been involved with the order for 11 of those 20 years. Wow. Um, and um, it started uh, by a nun that was a San Francisco sister, but living in Guerneville and realized there was actually a need this close to San Francisco for an order to start. So uh, she did it and she got a few friends together and uh, Sister Sparkle Plenty is our only uh, active uh, founder, uh, um, founding member uh, remaining. There were seven and now there's Sparkle. Wow. And we love her dearly. Yes. And you all do some amazing work. I mean, I am always astounded at the amount of money that you raise. And it's not just for LGBT organizations. Talk a little bit about some of the local organizations and schools that the sisters support. So uh, in starting 20 years ago, uh, the order uh, 
raised a lot of funds for uh, different LGBTQ organizations and then quickly found out that there was more of a need. Um, our order is very unique in the fact that we raise money for the entire community, be it pets, uh, dogs, cats, horses, you name it, goats even, um, seniors, children, um, the whole gambit um it's it it's it's amazing what we you know firefighters the you know yeah. uh when they need when they need something we're we're helpful to them um <laughs> uh so it's it's amazing how how the community has come together and uh really really um appreciates what we do and and is generous well that's for sure i mean i do think we have a pretty giving community up here in sonoma county but the sisters attract that type of giving what's the what's the typical outside of the pandemic here i mean this has been sort of an extraordinary time but what's the what's the typical amount of money that the sisters raise every year well let me just give you an example for our bingos which i've been in charge of uh for a few years now um when we can have a bingo um we will typically bring in about six to eight thousand dollars in one night wow and we do that 12 times a year. Plus, we try to give away um, about twenty dollars to $30,000 in grants a year. So, um, and all that money comes from the community. We have different fundraisers. For, we do the bingo. We also do a Give Back Tuesday at the, um, the Rainbow Cattle Company mm -hmm. here in Guerneville. And... Um, you know, it just, it, it's, it's, it's a communal thing and, and we raise as much money as we can for as many people as possible. Incredible. And you said you've been involved for 11 years. What, what drew True. you to the sisters specifically? <laughs> well, um, so I was helping out with Sonoma County Pride at the time mm -hmm. and there were a couple of sisters involved with Pride and um, I was very I was very wary of the makeup because I am a gal who does not like to wear makeup mm -hmm. unless it's a very special occasion. And, uh, but talking to them and there was a joint event between pride and, uh, the sisters and I went to it and I hung out with the sisters afterwards and, and, and in hanging out with them and listening to them talk to the community and what it takes to be a sister and all this stuff. I'm like, I could do that. <laughs> so, uh, so the very next chance after that, that I had to uh, aspire to become a sister, I, I took that opportunity and jumped in full force and haven't looked back. Oh, that's great. And yeah. we've learned a little bit about the process and we've certainly had the Russian River Sisters on before talking about this, but you know, that was a good opportunity for listeners, especially new listeners that might be interested in getting involved uh, it is a little bit of a process. You don't just sign up and show up and start doing your thing. No, no. It, we take vows for life to promulgate universal joy and expiate stigmatic guilt. Yes, those are big words. Yes, those are big responsibility words. Um, and uh, like I said, when uh, I joined the order, I aspired. And um, the first step in becoming a sister is you are an aspirant. And this is the chance for the order to get to know you, for you to get to know the order and work events and um, start playing with makeup a little bit kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. um, and during this time, like I said, you're going to events, you're meeting sisters. And at once three months go by and you come to three consecutive meetings, the very next meeting, uh, you can... Uh, petition to become a postulant and uh the postulant must have two big sisters in the order and those are members in good standing fully professed members in good standing then um they're in that process for four months um coming to events uh wearing white around their eyes and something on their head mm -hmm. uh and then when they're ready to petition to become a novice, they must have a mother, which the mother can be one of their big sisters, or it doesn't have to be, um, and also a member in good standing. And this person is going to guide them through their novitiate, which is the novice. 
And at this point, the novice is wearing white veil on their head, or if they're a brother or a father or a guard, they're wearing something else that's white on their head, a different kind of headpiece, um, uh, painting their face fully. And, um, and then they're also working on a novice project. It's a six month minimum process. And the novice project needs to be something that they show the order, how they work with their sisters, the community. Is it a fundraiser? Did it raise money? Those kind of things. And then you petition at the end of the six months minimum uh, to become a fully professed member. Wow. And those are the steps of being a sister. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's let's go back and talk about this last year, last year and a half with the pandemic. I mean, you mentioned the bingos, which are one of the most popular uh, <laughs> fundraising events, and you know, even even the Give Back Tuesdays. But people haven't been able to get together. How have the no. sisters fared through this? Yeah, we 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 are not able to do much it, uh, other than get together via Zoom. Um, we had to shut down bingo last March. March twenty twenty was. Uh, our first canceled bingo of this pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and then George Floyd died. Yeah. And when George Floyd died, um, I had a conversation with my father that didn't end well. Um, we don't think the same. Let's just say that. And um, I decided that I needed to do something um, and not just sit on my uh in my chair and watch TV and yell at the TV constantly. I needed to get out there and do something. And lo and behold, I'm a sister. So um, I, I started the socially distanced peace rally last June and we've been going strong ever since every second Saturday of the month that formerly was bingo and we will do it until we can have bingo again. Um, we meet uh, at the, post office in Guerneville and we walk to the plaza and we're there until we decide we're not going to be there anymore. It's usually about an hour. And, uh, that's what pretty much what we've been doing, uh, that's awesome. since the pandemic hit us. So one of the things that brought me to have you on the show this month is the toy drive coming up. Uh, it caught my attention on social media immediately. I can't think of too many things around the holidays that would be more important than supporting, young people that don't have what we have. Uh, so tell us about what you're doing with the toy drive and how people can get involved to support it. So last year was our first year doing this, uh, obviously because of the pandemic. Um, we have helped out with uh, previous toy drives in the past uh, because we've helped, we've done the uh, community holiday dinner every year for several years uh, on Christmas day. And a toy drive has always been attached to that. But with the pandemic, we had to rethink things and how are we gonna do this? How are we gonna get toys in kids' hands without the cross-contamination without, you know, all that kind of stuff. So basically we did a fundraising campaign where we raised money. And last year we were able to raise enough money for all the kids of Burnville School, Monterio School, and Stars Preschool uh, out on the river to get $15 in a gift certificate Holy to cow. go and spend at the, five, the Burnville Five and Dime. We were only hoping for 10 and we were able to get enough money for 15. Last year we started in November, like late November. Mm -hmm. And in one month we were able to raise enough money for all those kids to get $15 gift certificates to the five and time. This year we're adding Forestville school and uh, Forestville school has a lot of kids. I didn't realize. Uh, so, um, so we're upping our fundraising goal, um, and we're hoping to get enough money to present all those kids with $20 from the five and dime. And people might ask, why aren't you spreading it around to other businesses in the area? Well, that complicates things tremendously. <laughs> and, uh, I, I have a mantra of keep it simple, silly or stupid. Um, and so if to complicate things more and add more businesses and are you going to go here? Or are you going to go there? Where do we put the money? So just keeping it simple, we're going to the five and dime again. They have a great selection. Last year, a kid walked away with a disco ball 
what's not great about having a disco ball for Christmas. Okay. So, um, yeah, we're, we're doing the best we can and we're, we're really hoping that we can raise the funds to, to get all those kids $20 in gift certificates to the five and dime this year. So you mentioned Forestville school's got a big population. What's the total number of kids you're hoping to serve this year? So we're looking at 606 children. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. Just it incredible. Is. So for listeners who want to make a donation of any amount, because no amount is too small to make a big difference, as I like to say, uh, where would somebody go to do that? Well, there's a few different ways you can get us money. One, you can go to our website, www.rrsisters.org, and click on the donation, uh, the holiday toy drive poster, or there's a little button on the top of the screen that you could click and get to the page right to donate through PayPal. You can also send us a check. Hey, those work still. Uh, PO Box 771, Guerneville, California, 95446. Or if you are making a trip out to Guerneville and want to go stop by the Five and Dime and spend some money there, you can also leave us some money at the Five and Dime. So there's three different ways of getting us money. Great. So if you missed those details the website, and also uh, where to send a check. We'll put that on our website at OutBeatNews.com. Just click on show notes at the top of the page. I've done it. It's super easy to donate online. It took me all of about two minutes. And it feels good to be able to support locally, uh, you know, our kids here and, and the sisters organization. I love it. Awesome. Great. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Well, I'm going to be excited to hear how this all turns out, and it would be great to see some pictures of those kids and their smiles. Uh, There just isn't anything like it in the holidays, is there? Not at all. Not at all. When we we did our uh, community holiday uh, dinner, um, that was the one day a year that I would collect all my joy for the year. And not having the holiday dinner last year, it was kind of bittersweet, but I did collect all the joy hearing all the stories about the kids getting these gift certificates and then bringing them down to the five and dime and the joy on their faces I heard about uh, through many different people um, being able to get these toys. Uh, It's just, it, it was just a wonderful feeling. Fantastic. We have been talking with Sister Sorinda Dabuti. Love that name. From the Russian River Order of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Hey, thanks so much for spending time with us, but more importantly, for all the work you do throughout the year. Greg, it's been wonderful. Happy holidays. And that brings us to the end of our hour. Next week is a fifth Sunday, so be sure to tune in for an Outbeat Extra. This month, it's hosted by Gary Carnavelli. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on 104.9 KRCB-FM, Sonoma County's NPR station. In the meantime, do have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News In Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia. Our shows are available for on-demand play anytime on our website at outbeatnews.com and on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and now on iHeartRadio. Find links to subscribe at OutBeatNews.com. Support for OutBeat Radio on KRCB-FM comes from listeners and from Rocky, the free-range chicken, and Rosie, the original organic chicken. Air-chilled, non-GMO, locally raised right here in Sonoma County with no antibiotics ever. More information is available at RockyAndRosie.com. You're listening to 104.9 KRCB-FM Roanoke Park and KRCG-FM Windsor, Sonoma County's NPR station. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Beale Street Caravan is next.